0: You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, The Wadosh Group and the Attempted Rescue of Polish Jews, a lecture by historian Roger Morehouse. This public lecture took place on the 9th of November 2022 at Trinity College Dublin. The event was co-organized by by Holocaust Education Ireland, the Embassy of the Republic of Poland in Ireland, UCD School of History, and TCD School of Histories and Humanities. The lecture was introduced by Dr. Patrick Houlihan from Trinity College Dublin. I'm Dr. Patrick Houlihan, Assistant Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin, and I'd like to wish you all a warm welcome. I'm here along with my academic colleague, Dr. Mark Jones, Assistant Professor of History at University College Dublin, And Mark will lead the Q&A for this event. This is a co-organized, co-hosted event, arranged not only between two history departments, but sponsored and organized by the Embassy of the Republic of Poland in Dublin, as well as Holocaust Education Ireland. And I would like to thank all the co-organizers and sponsors for their hard work and generous support. This is truly a team effort. Now, taking care of some logistics at first, in the event of an emergency, there are exits at the uh, at the top corners of the room, um, and after Roger's talk, we will have questions and answers led by Dr. Jones. Roger's lecture tonight is historically evocative for many reasons. Among other things it is the anniversary of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, the Nazi programme against the Jews in November 1938. Furthermore, centenary anniversaries often provoke public reflection, and the year 2022 evokes 1922 with resonance. October 1922 saw Mussolini's March on Rome and the rise of fascism. In the year 1922, it was not all quiet on the Eastern Front. And now today, with a right-wing government in power in Italy and with warfare raging again in Eastern Europe, It is time for historical reflection on the course of events in 20th century Europe and their contemporary legacies. The subject of Roger's talk tonight deals with questions of agency and power in specific contexts, problematizing the categories of victims, perpetrators, and bystanders. Who did what to whom? Who chose to act? And what were the limits of intervention? These are some of the most difficult questions of the 20th century's history and the Holocaust and Shoah. And it is appropriate that we are in an academic forum here tonight where all claims, whether spoken or written, are subject to critical scrutiny based on reasoned argument and the examination of evidence. So in that spirit, before I introduce Roger, I invite representatives from the co-sponsoring organizations to make a few brief remarks. And first, we have the Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of Poland to Ireland, Madame Anna Sochińska. Madam Ambassador.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted that Roger kindly agreed to accept uh, the invitation of the Polish Embassy uh, in Dublin, and uh, he will uh, deliver a series of lectures Uh, Tonight's uh, lecture will be on the Wadosh group and he will tell us uh, in in a couple of minutes what uh, the Wadosh group uh, was. I would just like to thank uh, our partners, uh, Holocaust Education Island, uh, Trinity College Dublin, uh, University College Dublin for their uh, enthusiasm. Uh, cooperation and dedication, and I would also uh, like to um, offer a special uh, words of appreciation uh, to my uh, colleague from the embassy, Agnieszka Skolimowska, who was a spirituous moment of this uh, project. Thank you very much, Agnieszka, and I I hope you will enjoy uh, tonight's uh, event. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Next, we have Professor Thomas O'Dowd of Trinity College Dublin and the chairperson of Holocaust Education Ireland. Thank you very much. Uh, It is good to be here in person. I'm the current
2: chair of Holocaust Education Ireland. If you're looking us up on the web, you will find it under HETI.org because H-E-I is in your name. And we have quite a lot of information about Holocaust Education Ireland, which was founded in 2005. Um, And we work with the government uh, in memorialization and education. We have a very active education program, and we've got some leaflets there. Uh, We're delighted to be involved in organizing this event uh, with Her Excellency, and uh, ucd and trinity and i'm particularly looking forward to hearing uh,
0: dr moorehouse so thank you very much thank you very much uh, professor o'dowd and now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's featured speaker roger moorehouse Roger is a historian and author specializing in Nazi Germany, Central Europe, and World War II in Europe. He studied history and politics at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies of the University of London in the early 1990s, graduating with an MA in 1994. Roger has been a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Warsaw and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in London. Roger is the author of numerous books, um, and I only list a couple. Uh, Berlin at War, from 2010, The Devil's Alliance, from 2014, and First to Fight, of 2019, and this book was awarded the Polish Foreign Ministry History Prize in 2020. We are delighted to welcome Roger to Trinity for his lecture this evening, The Wadosch Group and the Attempted Rescue of Polish Jews. Roger.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you all very much for coming. Um, At the risk of repeating the thanks, I will do it anyway, um, form demands. Uh, Thanks very much to UCD and to Trinity for the uh, invitation, for hosting us today. Uh, Madam Ambassador, and for all your hard work, and and, uh, uh, Agnieszka as well. Thank you very much. And Holocaust Education. Wonderful that we've managed to put this together. Thank you. Um, As you've heard, uh, November the 9th, is a date that is positively pregnant with history, uh, particularly in the German sphere. As you'll know, it's the, uh, the date of the abdication of the Kaiser in 1918. It's the date of Hitler's attempted putsch in 1923. Uh, it's the date of the, as we heard, uh, Reichskristallnacht in 1938. And then, of course, you jump forward in a complete... Those three events, of course, being related historically because they sort of fed off each other but then by complete coincidence it's the date of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 so it's almost impossible to sort of uh, avoid German history both in its most uh, awful areas and also in a more positive sense uh, when you're talking about 9th of November it's, it's, it's front centre in, in German history um, what I like to talk about this evening is the Wadosh group, as you've heard. And in terms of Holocaust history, it's sort of a rare beast. Um, There are relatively few positive stories to come out of that very darkest chapter of human history, the Holocaust. Um, Parts of this operation, I should should add actually, this was my, this research project was my COVID project. So the last couple of years, I've just submitted the text for this. This will be a book which is gonna come out next year. Um, will be titled The Forgers. Um, We can talk about the nuances of of publishers and their titling in in due course. It will be titled The Forgers. It's been published in in the autumn of next year. Um, So this was my COVID project. This was my lockdown project, access to all of those wonderful archives, Yad Vashem, United States Holocaust Archive and so on, Holocaust Museum Archive. Um, So this was my activity for the last couple of years. I was locked in a shed uh, writing this, this book. It is quite a remarkable story. Now, parts of it had been sort of referenced uh, in parentheses and in footnotes and in in passing allusions uh, in a few sort of memoirs and a few academic studies uh, over the last couple of decades. But this proper story of the Wadash group in the round, i pulling all of those strands together to actually actually see what was going on, um, was only really done in the last five years um the Wadosh group, otherwise known as the Bern group or the Bernese group, um, was a group of six uh, Polish diplomats and Jewish activists active in Bern between 1914 and around 1943 uh, and as we'll hear they were it's one of the I think most significant uh, Holocaust re- rescue operations uh, of the war um, <clears throat> They were active in illegally producing again that phrasing is quite important they were active in illegally producing uh, Latin American passports and identity documents which were then smuggled back into primarily occupied Poland but also to um, Holland, particularly to the the transit camp at Festival. The full records of what they did unfortunately, are incomplete. But it has been plausibly estimated that they produced ent- identity documents for between eight and 10,000 individuals, of whom it is known that over 800 are known to have survived the Holocaust. That's perhaps, in the grand scheme of the Holocaust, the 6 million, that is, we might think, a small number. But it is still significant, particularly when we think of the significance that is attached to the story of Oscar Schindler, for example. Oscar Schindler, well known from Schindler's List, uh, and from uh, Schindler's Ark, the Thomas Keneally book. Um, probably one of the best known stories of Holocaust rescue, Oscar Schindler saved 1,200 Jews, albeit in very different circumstances. So 800 is not inconsiderable. It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a profoundly important number particularly if you're one of, a descendant of one of the 800. So I'm going to talk about uh, how this operation worked, who the members of the Wadish group were, um, to some extent what motivated them, but that's a relatively straightforward question, and what the results of their operation uh, were as well. So that first slide you can see there are the six members of the Wadish group. Um, there were others sort of peripheral to it, it would be an exaggeration to describe this as some sort of um, sort of all-encompassing conspiracy in the way that Hollywood might, might remake this story, that they all sort of sat together in a room and sort of cooked up the idea of how they are going to do what they did. That's not really how real life works, I, in my experience anyway. So it's a rather organic group. Um, three professional diplomats, who are the, the two on the left, Alexander Wydosh and Stefan Rinievich and the top in the middle, Konstantin Rokitsky. So they were all diplomatic staff of the um, Polish embassy in, in Switzerland. Um, Julius Krull, in the centre at the bottom, was a uh, Polish Jew who had been living in uh, Switzerland for many years. He'd actually done his PhD in economics at the University of Bern, and he was employed by the, by the embassy as local staff. So he was an employee of the embassy rather than a career diplomat. And on the right hand side, we have two Jewish activists, both active in Switzerland. Abraham Silberschein, who was himself, uh, had himself been a Polish MP and had only arrived in Switzerland in 1939. He'd actually been sort of stranded by the outbreak of war in 1939. Um, Very active in in setting up uh, relief organizations for European Jews, particularly Polish Jews, obviously because he was Polish. Um, And he set up an organisation called Relico, which was basically fundraising and uh, providing supplies, medical supplies, religious supplies, so religious items that that, uh, Orthodox Jews particularly found um, vitally important for for carrying on some semblance of normal life, uh, even after 1939. So this is a crucial part that we don't really think about, that um, a lot of these religious supplies had to be sourced outside of outside of, uh, of Poland and sort of shipped in. So he was involved very much with that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, Chaim Ice as well, who's another um, Jewish activist, much more on the sort of orthodox side. So he was, he was very orthodox uh, and was much more concerned with sort of the re- religious life, again, of um, Polish Jews. So this was a... We could say it's a rather loose collaboration, but the idea is that I think these six were the only ones that actually knew the totality of the plan of what they were doing. So again, I wouldn't I wouldn't stress too much that they were sitting in a room conspiring together. But these were it's estimated that these are the these are the core six that actually knew that every every aspect of the of the plan. Um, I should say a word about Alexander Wadosh himself. He's very significant. He was the ambassador, although that was not the title that he went under at the time. Um, He had been quite a significant junior diplomat in Polish service uh, in the 1920s and up until 1926 with the the arrival of the the Pilsudski regime. Um, He then fell from favour gradually. He was quite oppositional towards the Pilsudski regime. He fell from favour around 1930. Uh, and it eventually left the foreign office, the Polish foreign office, uh, and ended up being uh, a, essentially an oppositional journalist uh, within Poland. So he was brought back into the, into the fold with the government in exile. So if you remember that Poland falls in, the, in October of 1939, invaded by the Germans from the west, by the Soviets from the east, Polish government flees via Romania, as, along with a lot of uh, Polish troops. Uh, they get to uh, France for 1940. France falls in 1940. They end the Polish government in exile ends up in, in London uh, and tries to maintain some sort of a semblance of normal diplomatic process, albeit with the proviso that the, or the obstacle that the Germans themselves are basically trying to. Uh, Prevent any sort of normality in that sense because they're saying well how can you represent a country that doesn't exist Poland of course has been wiped off the map at this point so the Germans actually tried to resist Wadosh's appointment uh, to Switzerland he was sent because Switzerland was a crucially important sort of staging post as you can imagine Switzerland in 1940 is an island of democracy in what is fast becoming a fascist scene Uh, so Switzerland is crucially important, not only for foreign intelligence services, but crucially for the Poles as well, for them to be able to sort of keep tabs on uh, what's going on in Central Europe and what's what's happening with Polish refugees who are uh, um, all over Europe at that point. Um, So Bern is very important to the Poles as well. So they wanted someone in Bern that they felt they could trust the government in so they Saint-Alexander Radosch, it was very well respected in London already. He had been po- appointed briefly as a minister in the, in the um, uh, government in exile in 1940, and he was sent to to be ambassador uh, in Bern in the spring of 1940. The others were already in place at that point, the other uh, diplomatic staff that I mentioned. So he joins a sort of already uh, um, functioning, functioning team. One crucial point about Wadosh himself is that he had... Benefited from a forged passport in his own life. Uh, He wrote a memoir, it was never published, but it's it's in the archive and it's incomplete sadly. Um, It doesn't even cover this period of his life, so it covers his early life and then he was uh, stricken with cancer and uh, died before he could finish it. Um, But he talks about this one episode when, uh, during World War I, I think from memory it was 1915, where he was um, essentially sent for internal exile by the Habsburg authorities. So he grew up in in Lwów, in Galicia, uh, and was sent on internal exile by the Habsburg authorities because of his Polish agitation as a Polish nationalist, as a Polish patriot. Uh, And he escaped promptly from... He was sent to the Tyrol. He promptly escaped, using a forged passport, incidentally, into Switzerland. So there's a curious sort of parallel between his early life and his later life. But it does show you, I think, a crucial point here, which is that the Polish mindset, even of the ambassador himself, was that it was perfectly justified and reasonable to be producing false passports. Because he's benefited from one himself. Right? This was an idea that, for the Swiss, and to a lesser extent for the Germans, was horrifying. The idea that a diplomat would actually be actively forging passports. This is unthinkable to the Swiss. So there's a, there's a complete sort of clash of, of world view, to use that phrase, uh, between someone like Wadosh and his Swiss counterparts. And that comes out uh, in some of their exchanges later in the story. So those are, those are our six members of the Wados group. How did the, how did the plan come about? Again, as I said before, it's actually rather organic, it must be said. It's rather or, or organic, the way it develops. Um, we have to understand, first of all, that um, large numbers of Polish Jews are stranded in eastern Poland, in Soviet-occupied Poland. So the, the Soviet occupation of Poland in 1939-1940 is something I've written about before, but it's not generally well-known, it's not generally part of the narrative. So um, I'm kind of assuming that you know, the, the Irish narrative of World War II is kind of similar to the general Western one. I might be wrong there, apologies if so. Um, but it's, I'm assuming it kind of belongs to that same sort of Anglophone canon. But in that narrative, Nazi Germany looms, looms very, very large. And to to such an extent that we almost imagine that there's only one villain in this early phase of the war, and that's Adolf Hitler. But we have to remember, of course, that that, um, uh, Joseph Stalin is also a villain in that early phase of the war. He's not yet joined the ranks of the Grand Alliance, which he does after 1941. He is an active and rather willing ally, in inverted commas, of of Adolf Hitler in this period. And, of course, had, had colluded with Nazi Germany in the... Destruction of Poland in 1939. Now, a lot of Polish Jews had either ended up in that Soviet-occupied zone, or had actually fled away from the German occupation into the Soviet zone of occupation, expecting it to be more favourable, more lenient towards them. And in many cases, they were disabused of that assumption (coughs) because the Soviet Union was, although nominally tolerant towards religious and national minorities. It certainly didn't like wealthy Jews, it didn't like merchants who had a bit of money, people had property. This is the Soviet Union, after all, this is a social revolution. So it certainly didn't like also religious Jews. So it clamped down actually quite hard on uh, orthodoxy in that period. So a lot of those who either ended up in, eastern, in the eastern zone of Poland or fled there, realised they didn't like what they were experiencing in the Soviet zone, and one of the main routes out was to go north into Lithuania. So that was then still was under increasing the Soviet pressure. It uh, wasn't fully occupied and annexed by the Soviet Union until the autumn of 1940. So in that summer of 1940, it was still uh, seen as a, as a legitimate way out of the predicament that many Polish Jews found themselves in in the Soviet zone. So a lot of them go into Lithuania and then want to escape but it's very difficult for them to actually get out at all. And With that, with that sort of growing pressure from the Soviets through the summer of 1940, they realised they had to get out. Um, this is where this man comes in. This, this story, in, in isolation, is a little bit better known, but it's an important contributor to the, to the Wadosh story. This is the uh, Japanese consul in Kaunas in Lithuania. His name was Kiyune Subihara. Uh, He was essentially an an intelligence agent who was sent to Lithuania by the Japanese to spy on the Soviets, the Germans, whoever it is. Whoever was considered more dangerous or more significant at the time. So again Lithuania was viewed as a sort of an island within this totalitarian sea and he was there to spy on whoever was uh, misbehaving. Um, He had a very strong um, humanitarian bone within him and when he saw the large numbers of Jewish uh, refugees clamoring, literally clamoring at the, the gates of his consulate in Kaunas, uh, he had to act. He did actually ask for permission from his Japanese superiors as to whether he could start issuing visas. They told him that he, that he couldn't, but he thought he'd do it anyway. And the key, th- the key problem that they had was that those um, Jewish refugees in Lithuania... It, the only way out for them was essentially east across the Soviet Union. But the pe- pe- peculiarities of, of the Soviet bureaucracy at the time, which was phenomenal, um, meant that you couldn't actually apply for a transit visa across the Soviet Union without having an exit visa at the other side. Right? So you couldn't just sort of go across the Soviet Union in the expectation you could get out the other way. They, that, they wouldn't allow it. So he was, he was uh, giving, giving out, and literally handing them out of the, uh, the consulate, he was giving out Japanese transit visas. So this was to get across Japan, with which these refugees could then apply to the Soviet authorities for a transit visa across the Soviet Union. And the key part of this as well was that it, he was in concert with the Dutch consul uh, in Kaminas as well, his name was Svartendijk, who gave the end end destination of that journey, which was supposed to be Curacao? because Curacao was the only place that uh, that Jews could get to without any sort of paperwork or any sort of uh, entry visa. So he was providing the end destination of Curacao, and they could go all the way across the Soviet Union, across Japan, and nominally end up at Curacao. but it gave them that exit route. And Sugihara was, was giving out these visas, you can see an example of one there, Uh, beautifully uh, created visa, Consulate of Japan Karnas, Lithuania Um, he was giving these out in the summer of uh, 1940 almost like confession to anyone that would take them so it's a fascinating story in its own right but where it sits in this wider story of the Wadosh group I think has not not been um, fully appreciated before so the Polish connection to all of this is quite profound at the far end of that journey in Japan, the organization for, for meeting those Polish Jewish refugees was organized by the ambassador, the then ambassador in Japan, Polish ambassador in Japan. His name was Tadeusz Romer. And he set up a tremendous organization, fundraising, accommodation, providing onward onwards bureaucratic help You know, for those that perhaps didn't have the right documentation to help them to get to where they have to go to. Um, he provided all of that assistance uh, in Japan so that they could get further on. So London definitely knew that this was going on, i.e. that the, the Polish government in exile in London. And also the Polish embassy in Bern knew that this was going on, because we know that they sent uh, about 500 Polish passports, blank passports, that they had in the safe of Bern. We know that they were sent to Kalnassi. Uh, in this period to help with this processing of Polish uh, Jewish refugees. so there's a crucial sort of causal link between what Sufihara is doing and what the waddish group end up doing and the crucial part where this is where this all begins to fall into place is with this chap, Leo Weingort. Leo Van Gogh came from a uh, Polish-Jewish family. They lived in Bielsko down in the south of, um, of Poland. Um, his elder brother, his name was Saul Van He had already uh, emigrated to Switzerland. He was working in a yeshiva, in a, in a, um, a Jewish school, a uh, Jewish religious school in uh, Switzerland already. Leo was his younger brother, and his, there was also a sister and uh, the, the parents of the, of the two, of the three. So they were left effectively in limbo and they were writing letters as everyone did that was stranded in that period whether whether they be in the German area of occupation or the Soviet area of occupation writing letters to anyone that could help them you know, find us paperwork, find us a way out find us a visa, whatever it was he wrote to his brother in Switzerland and said, you know, you have to get us out of here he was in uh, Lvov in in, uh, Soviet-occupied Lviv in eastern Eastern Poland Um, and he was writing to his brother, pleading for his brother to help him. And this is where this this narrative sort of falls into place. His brother, through various contacts, through this sort of Jewish aid organisations that we'd mentioned, the two activists that we talked about, he ended up in an interview with Julius Kuhn at the Polish embassy, and he said, I've heard this rumour that you can provide these... Passport, and they can get to South America. He's thinking about the Curacao plan. This is this is where it's it's all falling into place. He says, "I've heard this rumor that you can you can get to South America, you know, via Japan." And cool says, "Well, no, um, we've heard that too, and we're not sure it entirely works. But if, you know, if you want to try, that's fine." So they actually modify that slightly with the, by using a local. Um, honorary consul, consul in Bern who was a Swiss he was a Swiss um, uh, uh, lawyer and he was the honorary consul for Paraguay and his name was Rudolf Hooghly I would love to be able to show you a picture of Rudolf Hooghly but as far as I can find out none exist which is my, that to me if, at the moment is the holy grail is to find a picture of Rudolf Hooghly I don't have one. Hooghly was how do we put this uh, open to inducements of the financial variety. Um, as I said, he was a, he was a lawyer, so he you know, had a certain standing in society, but they knew that he was bribeable, essentially. Um, and he already had that, uh, evidently, he already had that reputation. So when they wanted to try and put this together, they approached Tugly and they said, well, how much would it cost for you to produce a Paraguayan past?" And he says 2,000 francs, which is a hell of a lot of money. In 1940, that's an awful lot of money. The price does come down in due course. Um, And he produces a passport for Leo Lord. A photograph is produced, as you can see there. His life details are produced through that correspondence. And a Paraguayan passport is duly produced by Hugh Lee. It's duly stamped. It's it's legally produced. Well, it's, it's officially produced, but it's not been sort of certified by the Paraguayans. So there's, these aren't strictly forgeries. You could say they're unofficially issued passports because Hugli did have the authority to issue passports, but he was just not doing the necessary checks and paperwork. Right? But he was issuing semi-official, if you like, passports. So Weinbord's passport, which is sent out to him in Le Wolf, is the first Paraguayan Wadosh Passport. This is the sort of genesis of the idea. And as I said, it builds on, on that narrative with of Sugihara uh, and that um, that story of uh, of uh, crossing the Soviet Union. And incidentally, there's a letter that I've seen from the uh, the archives where Hubli follows up, having sent this passport, he follows up with a letter addressed to Weingold in the Wolf saying... Um, I trust you've received your passport. Can you let us know when you will be travelling? And we assume, and he says the best thing to do is to go via Japan. So he's again, he's harming back to the Subihara operation. He's saying that's the best way to go. Go that way. Because you can't come in any other direction. You have to go that way. So you can see that's where the DNA of the, of the, the idea comes from. Um, just to finish on moment, on uh, Vinegar for a moment, he actually didn't leave he received his passport in May of 1941 uh, and he didn't leave because he went back to his brother and he said, that's wonderful, thank you. you know, so he said, it, actually in June with, with the German invasion, which obviously overran Eastern Poland, he said, he wrote to his brother again and said the passport has already saved my life because he could essentially stop any sort of roundup. That he might be involved with by flashing this passport and saying, I'm a foreign citizen. And that worked for him. So it already saved his life in the summer of 1941. But he went back to his brother and said, Can you get me another passport for my girlfriend? And at that point, it, to some extent, the, the trial the trail goes cold. Um, he ends up actually in Warsaw, and as I say on that slide, um, he goes through that whole process that we'll talk about later on, going through various transit camps as what became known as an exchange due by the Germans, that was the phrase they used, uh, and ended up being murdered in Auschwitz in 1944. So um, ultimately there is not a happy ending for Leo Weingold, unfortunately. But his, his example is very much the catalyst for the operation. So how did it work? There's a couple of examples here. Um, On the left is one of these passports, a Hooghly passport. I don't know if this has got a pointer. It has. So you can see this is Hooghly's signature, which is very distinctive. You can see it there as well. So this is one of these passports. um, The Consul of the Republic of Paraguay then, and then it gives all of these. And generally, as you can see from that, a passport was not issued to one individual. It could be issued to a whole family. So this is why there's some confusion as to the numbers. This is why there's that sort of um, broad spread of possible numbers, because they're not sure. It's not like one individual per passport. There are often, they work out on average, there's 2.4 individuals per passport. And those, those examples that are, are excellent. Um, so that's an example of a, of a Wadosh passport. This is a lesser Thing. This is called a promesa, as mean a promise in Spanish. Uh, and whereas one of these, as I said, Hugley was charging about 2,000 Swiss francs in 1940 or 1941 for one of these, the price did come down subsequently. Um, but these were much cheaper. Very often these were actually given away. This is merely a letter, as you can see, signed and stamped by the, by the Honorary Consul of Paraguay, Rudolf Hugley. And it basically says, I am confirming your status as a citizen of Paraguay. So it's not a formal passport, it's merely a document that says this person is a, is a, um, a citizen of Paraguay. So these were the promises. And these were sent out, and they were also sent out from other countries as well. Um, like, uh, San, uh, San Salvador, uh, um, or El Salvador rather, did them. Honduras did them. So there are many other examples uh, of other countries doing it at the same time, but this is a Paraguayan example. So how it works was essentially that um, the names for these, of so people would apply for one of these passports or, or promesas, they would send their life details to, through that Jewish AIDS agency network, you would end up with either, at either Silvershine or ICE, and that would then be passed on to the Polish uh, diplomats who then had the contact to Hughley. So they would, uh, in the first instance, go to Hughley and buy a batch of blank passports, which would then be brought back, filled out. This rather peculiar and, very, again, very distinctive, almost cursive handwriting is that of, of uh, uh, Rokitski, the chap at the top in the middle, uh, who I mentioned, um, all of them, are, with very few exceptions, all Wadosh passports are made out in the same hand. And, it's very distinctive, and, that, and that belonged to, uh, to Rokitski. Um, so for the Polish diplomats involved, this was, and they, they said so under interrogation by the Swiss, they said this was a humanitarian operation a soon. As far as they were concerned, they were saving initially, crucially, Polish Jews. These are Polish citizens, as far as they were concerned. They were saving Polish Jews. Later on, the plan is extended, and, it's, and, it, and it is focused um, much more on, on Dutch Jews as well. But initially, the interest is in, in saving Polish Jews, and for them, it's a humanitarian operation. For the the two Jewish activists we're talking about, Heim, um, Ice, and uh, Abraham Silberschein, there's a slightly different mentality there, which is quite interesting. and It comes across in some of the documents. There's a realisation already, by the time this scheme gets going properly by 1942, there's already a realisation that what the Jewish people is facing in Europe is annihilation, is extermination. And that's very clear to people like Abraham Silkshine. So they're being inundated with these letters, very often desperate letters, and very often written in code, which is fascinating to try and sort of decipher and so on. But they're being inundated with letters, begging for paperwork, and they, they start quite naturally, they start to apply some sort of vetting procedure, essentially. They can't provide papers for everyone. So there is a sort of a vetting procedure that's applied. And it's interesting that the two, the, the characters in the background of the two Jewish activists, we've mentioned, Abraham Silbershine, and kind eyes, is very significant here, because Silbershine was... um, assimilated to a large extent. He was still religious, a religious Jew, but he was assimilated. Uh, He served, as I said, he he had been an MP in the um, Polish parliament. Um, He was a Zionist, but he was very much, you know, of the world, should we say. So his list of criteria for, you know, the best people that should be saved would be, you know, doctors, professors, journalists, authors, historians, of course. But it's, it's, as he would have put it, sort of the brightest of the best, because it's almost like, if you imagine, creating a sort of a Noah's Ark of the Jewish people. That's that's the mentality that they're applying. And for Chaim Hayes, it's much more... Rabbis, religious teachers, scholars, and so on, because, because he's on the Orthodox side. So it's very interesting between the two. They are applying some sounds to us, perhaps a bit cruel, but that's how it was. They had to vet those applicants that came in because they needed to to focus their activities and their and their funds, which were limited, on those that they considered to be the most uh, worthy recipients. So as I said, it's, it's something like almost a sort of Jewish arc that they are creating. So individuals would apply, um, asking for that, that paperwork, it would be then passed on, vetted to some extent by our by our the two Jewish activists, passed on to the Polish diplomats, who would then create the documents, take them back to Hugli to be signed and stamped, and then be brought back to the embassy and put back out through those uh, through the Jewish. Uh, Aid organization and very often sent by post actually back into occupied Poland. That's how it worked. It could take months. There are lots of letters in the archive of desperate people writing saying, essentially, where's my passport? Um, What's happened? I'm, you know, essentially, uh, if you imagine 1942, you've got some of the the great roundup in Warsaw in June of 1942, Adam Cherniakov. Um, the, head, the head of the, the Warsaw Udenreichs commits suicide because he realises that this is the end for, um, for Warsaw Jewry. That's the environment that Warsaw is in at the time. So it's a very, very sort of febrile, uh, threatening environment, hugely so, with mass deportation. So these people are writing desperate letters to try and find out where their paperwork has gone. The key thing, and this might sound a bit peculiar... Uh, to us now. But the key thing is that what these, pa- these papers did was to essentially re legalize those individuals, those Jewish individuals that, that held them. One of the key aspects of the Holocaust in terms of the preparation for it, I think we sometimes think of the Holocaust as, a, as almost a sort of a wanton, furious slaughter. But it's actually a very controlled process on the German side. So, for example, to give you an example, when you were, as a German Jew, when you were deported from Germany into occupied Poland, into the ghetto of Luz, for example, or into, uh, you know, the ghettos of perhaps Minsk or somewhere further east, when you were deported, your deportation notice had on the, front, on the front page of it six articles of Polish law, of German law, excuse me, of German law upon which your deportation was based. So this was a strictly legal process as far as you're concerned. To to defy it was to break the law. Which is why so the vast proportion, vast majority of German Jews comply with their deportation. It's not out of meekness. It's because they don't want to break the law. They're still wedded to the the idea of the rule of law and the state not being a vicious, murderous actor which it has become. And crucially, by by the time they cross the... German frontier, the frontier of the Reich, their status as German citizens lapsed. That was part of the process. So by the time they arrive in Łódź or in Minsk or in Riga, wherever it is, they are non-people. Right? Officially, they do not exist. And of course, that means that their German overlords can do what the hell they like, with Right? This is a crucial precondition for Holocaust, is this delegalization of the individual. And the same thing applies in Poland. So all the Polish identity documents lapse essentially with the, with the collapse of Poland. As far as the Germans are concerned, they're not considered valid. So all of those people who are rounded up essentially have no legal status. They are nobodies. So what this does, and again, it sounds quite tenuous, but I think it's significant. What these papers do is it allows that individual to say, hang on, I'm a citizen of Paraguay, You can't do this. And the ordinary German guard, or whoever it is, has oh God, another one. And they will send you not to Auschwitz, by the time Auschwitz is up and running, not to auschwitz Birkenau, but they will send you instead to a transit camp, for what becomes classified in the German sense as exchange dues. So they put you into a different category. And exchange dues, as the name suggests, were people who are to be exchanged for German citizens living abroad. Again, I remind you again, stating the bleeding obvious, but Nazi Germany is a racial project. So not only we know about this sort of elimination, the extermination of what the, the Germans called bad blood, i.e., Jewish blood, or the, the you know the T four program with uh, disabled individuals. So that's. So the Nazi mind is the destruction of bad blood. But the flip side of that is the redeeming of good blood in their minds, which is Germans abroad. And there were tens of thousands of German citizens living in the United States, for example, also across Latin America, from the, from the earlier emigration after the First World War. Many of them, particularly in America, had been rounded up and kept in camps. So they were ripe for some sort of exchange programme. So the Germans knew this very well. So as soon as they've got people coming up to them in the ghettos and in the camps with these documents and saying, hey, you can't do this, I'm a Paraguayan citizen, however fraudulent it might, might seem. Your name might be Abraham Feldman and you don't speak a word of Spanish. And they know you don't speak a word of Spanish. But actually the Germans don't care. So in a sense they're complicit in this because they think this is another... another German that we can redeem with this person, to, to, to their mind, to the, Jew, the Jew himself is worthless. <coughs> but if that person can redeem a German, then they have a value. So that's the mentality that we are working with. So the Germans, once they realise what's going on, they're not fooled by this. They're, but they're actually complicit in it because they think that they can redeem German blood in the process. Right? As exchange Jews. So what goes wrong? As as I've explained, the problem with this is not primarily with the Germans. The Germans are kind of, to some extent, complicit in it. Um, Incidentally, one of the camps that they sent them to was Belsen, um, which has an awful reputation. Obviously, all all German concentration camps have bad reputations. But Belsen, particularly in in the British narrative, because it was one of the camps that the British liberated, uh, it's, you know, to answer the British narrative, it's right up there in the nationalists. It was dreadful. It has one of the highest death tolls at the end of the war, something like 55,000. Um, Crucially, is not an extermination camp. It is just a sort of a, a hybrid concentration camp. And a small section of Belsen was set aside for these exchange Jews, where they are kept in nominally better conditions than, uh, than elsewhere in the camp. But nonetheless, uh, if you were lucky, And you escaped Warsaw and you got to Belsen in 1943. You had to survive two years in Belsen to survive the war, which is an ask. So bear that in mind. Um, So what went wrong? So as I said, the problem is not necessarily with the Germans, initially, anyway. One of the problems is with the Swiss. Uh, The Swiss, as I've said, didn't take too kindly to the unofficial production of of, um, passports by, um, by foreign diplomats. Uh, this chap Heinrich Rodmund was the chief of the um, Swiss, what was known as the Alien Police. Um, he was, I think it's fair to say, an anti-Semite. I couched a little bit in the phrasing. Um, he had actually represented Switzerland at the Evian Conference. Those of you know the story of the Evian Conference in 1938, uh, which was a, a, a diplomatic exercise in kicking the Jewish problem down the road, effectively. Nothing was done, nothing was agreed, it was just sort of kicked down the road to, to some sort of future uh, settlement that, 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 uh, that never took place. He was the Swiss representative there who basically said, No, I'm sorry, Switzerland is full, we're not, not going to allow any refugees in. Um, and as you can see there, he, he spearheaded the crackdown on the Wadash group when it came in 1943, spurred by the Germans in September. So the Germans also. Uh, began to crack down on this because of its illegality. So they initially tried, the Germans initially sent agents to try and infiltrate the group, which didn't work. There were certainly two agents that we know, um, you can see in the, in the archives, that tried to infiltrate the group and failed, uh, and were arrested, arrested by the Swiss. And then the Germans tried the indirect route, which was to pressurise the Swiss authorities into trying to close it down. So throughout 1943, basically all of the members of the group and all of those peripheral to it are brought in for interrogation and basically told Well, you know, what the hell do you think you are doing? And one amazing line that is used uh, in those interrogations was, I think it was with when Wadosh himself was being interrogated, and he said, he used that line, he said, they asked him, what the hell do you think are doing? He said, this is a humanitarian operation. We're trying to save as many people as possible. And the reply that came back, was, I don't care what you're doing, but don't do it on Swiss soil. So it's just purely about the sort of legalistic element. They weren't interested in the humanitarian bit, they were just interested in that, uh, the legal or illegal production of um, passports, which they didn't like and didn't appreciate. Uh, They did manage to close down Hooghly, so they did have enough clout to close down Rudolf Hooghly, so his status as honorary consul was withdrawn, and he went back to being a provincial lawyer, a uh, provincial solicitor, uh, and disappears from the record, sadly. Um, presumably an extremely wealthy man, incidentally, because he's the only one that actually made any money out of all of this. So all of the others, whether it be the Jewish aid organisation or the Polish, Polish government itself in exile, which was also supplying funds to this operation, nobody made money out of it except for Hubery. He disappeared from the scene in 1943 and presumably enjoyed a very comfortable retirement. The other negative in this story is actually the US State Department. The US State Department was very active in agitating amongst the Latin American states and persuading them that these passports shouldn't be recognised. Now, the key thing here is that for those within the Guadalaj group who are producing the passports, they never intended for the people that held them to go to Paraguay or to go to Honduras and wherever it is. It was only ever a ruse to enable them to save their lives because they knew they would be ended up in, in these transit camps. They would be classed as exchange Jews. They might end up somewhere, but the intention was never that they would go to Paraguay. But when... The Germans start to unravel this in 1943, and they start to put the pressure on the Swiss. They also start asking questions to the and others, saying, do you know that these parcels have been produced in Switzerland with your name on them? And they say, no, you have no idea. And this then becomes a diplomatic wrangle between primarily the government of the Polish government exile in London, the US State Department in Washington, and those Latin American governments. Three-cornered wrestle. With the polls saying, understanding what this is, this is a humanitarian operation. We're not going to be sending large numbers of Jews to to Honduras or to Paraguay. It's purely a ruse to get them out of the camps and to save their lives. I paraphrase, of course, but that's essentially what the message was. But it was predicated on those Latin American countries recognizing those passports and saying, yes, we will recognize that passport, even though that person will never go to Paraguay. Right? And at the same time, the uh, American State Department is going, "Oh, this is all very good. This is not good. We don't want to. We don't want to see people." One of the lines they used was that um, they didn't want to this operation to become a conduit for German espionage. That was the official excuse they used, which is rather spurious. But anyway, fair enough. The second one I think is more telling. The second line of argument that was used by the American State Department was. Uh, we shouldn't allow illegal activity to be rewarded. Again, this kind of hyper-legalistic mentality, reminiscent of the Swiss in, in many ways. So you have this three through 1944 mainly. The Dutch group has stopped producing their parcels because they lost. all They've lost Hugh cleans He's out of the scene. There are various other consuls who will produce them, but it's kind of fallen apart by the end of 1943. So all of 1944. Is essentially a diplomatic wrangle over recognition between, as I said, Polish embassy, well, Polish government in exile in London, State Department, and the Latin American governments, with the Germans listening in, because crucially for them, they've got all of these people by the thousands in transit camps in Vitel, in Tutmoning, in Bavaria, and in uh, and in Belsen. mainly in Belsen. and they're listening into these conversations, and they and they they're, they're tuned in to their uh, the representatives of those, those Latin American governments in, in Berlin. And where recognition is not forthcoming, or if they come forward and say, well, we're not going to recognise whatever, whatever passport it was, then the Germans start deporting individuals that hold those passports. So there's this agonising process in 1944 by which, by the time a notice of recognition comes in, very often the individuals themselves have been rounded up and sent to Auschwitz and to their deaths. So it's, 44 is a, is a peculiar sort of two level narrative. At one level this diplomatic wrangle, which seems a little bit dry perhaps, but then you've got the very real effects of that, which is where that gray area of recognition, because of course, as I said, if those passports are not going to be recognized, then there's no, no exchange is going to happen from a German perspective, so they're useless. So then again, they're just useless Jews, we'll send them to ashes. That's the mentality. So without recognition, they're useless to them, as exchange dues. <clears throat> the last piece of that puzzle, as I said, the Latin American governments, who were very, very weary and very tardy, it must be said, very tardy, about going down that route of recognition, despite, I think, having all of the evidence before them about how the process was supposed to work. They still were very reluctant. And I think the only, the only answer to it, to, to the, the behaviour of those governments, is fundamentally anti-Semitism. It has to be. There's no other, given all of the information that they had at their disposal, their unwillingness to sort of play the game, to my mind it just comes down to a sort of a basic, mm, no, on essentially on anti-Semitic grounds. That would be my argument. Um, there are some further arguments about you know, particular governments saying well we don't want our good name to be sullied by you know, acknowledging forged passports which is perhaps again is, a, is an argument perhaps you could appreciate but um, it, it, the whole episode doesn't really cover them in glory it must be said um, so what happens so at the end of this process the end of 1943 as I've said the passport operations have essentially been rolled up uh, and you have this tussle for recognition through 1944. You have a remnant of those exchange dues being kept. So Vittel is cleared uh, at the end of 1944. You have a remnant of those exchange Jews almost exclusively kept in Belson uh, at the end of 1944 and into 1945. And any of you that know the history of Belsen will know that Belsen administration, Belsen food supply and everything else, the conditions in Belson absolutely collapse at the end of 1944 into 1945. And they were pretty atrocious before. Um, so exchange Jews were kept in a particular part of the camp where they were better treated to some extent. They didn't, they didn't initially at least they didn't have to work, whereas other camp inmates did. Later they had to work as well. Their food supply was generally a bit better, but again that's not saying much. But by the end of 1944, everybody is in the same boat, which is typhus, dysentery. Um, now open sewers it's an absolute shambles uh, Belsen and that explains the high death toll—55,000. 55,000 is high for a regular concentration camp, i.e. not a death camp um, so Belson was a, a dreadful place and if you managed to survive Belson for any length of time you were either extremely lucky or um, or blessed in some way um, end results just to wind things up at the end you have there we are there's Bilson um, and a, Vittel is a peculiarity Vittel in France obviously now famous for the water but um, the camp that they set up in Vittel incidentally was sort of in the centre of the, of the town and it was a complex of, of hotels that the Germans essentially sort of uh, commandeered and just put barbed wire around these hotels. So again, those that arrived in Vittel were kept in relatively good conditions. And um, there's this bizarre sort of scenario where a couple of the memoirs talk about this, where people are coming out of the ghetto of Warsaw in 43, and being sent to Vittel, And, they, and they, they come out having experienced, in many cases directly, but if not then indirectly, they've experienced the destruction of the liquidation of the Warsaw ghetto in the spring of 1943. And then they end up in Patel with German officers greeting them at the reception desk, desk, desk of the hotel and saying, would serve like a balcony. I mean, literally, it's literally as ridiculous as that. So they're being housed in hotels. Um, you know, the food supply is reasonably good and uh, it's all very peculiar. So that, that dissonance, that cognitive dissonance is there, is there in a lot of the, the accounts. Of course, Patel was then subsequently cleared. And all of those in Patel with Latin American passports were subsequently sent to Ashland's. Including incidentally Leo Weinberg's family. So he was within that group, ended up in, in, in Auschwitz in 1944. Um, so at the end of all of that, we have, from this partial list that's been reconstructed, we have over 800 Radosh passport uh, um, holders who managed to survive the them, which is the say is remarkable because it's not. The Wadish passport is not a guarantee of safety at all. It gets you out of the deportation, it gets you out of the camp, it might get you out of the ghetto, but it got you then potentially into Belsen or into Vittel, and that meant Auschwitz. So it's not a guarantee of safety. So at best, as I said, at best you could expect to be sent to Belsen and then you had to survive Belsen. It must be said that for some individuals particularly the Dutch Jews there is this shift among the Germans towards using Dutch Jews as exchange Jews for a simple and brutally logical reason which was that Dutch Jews had not experienced by 1943-44 Dutch Jews had not experienced the same horrors as as Polish Jews had so they hadn't seen the ghettos, they hadn't seen the destruction of, of the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943 they hadn't seen the everyday horrors that were inflicted on Jews in occupied Poland. So the occupation, that the German occupation of Poland, horrible though it was, was nowhere near as brutal as, it, as the German occupation of Poland, right? So they considered that if you're going to allow some of these people to survive, you want them to be the ones who are not going to say bad things about you, and say tell the truth of the whole thing. So they considered Dutch Jews to be effectively clean sins because they wouldn't be able to tell the same stories, the same horror stories, that Polish Jews could do. So there is this shift, conscious shift in the German mentality around this question of exchange Jews. In early 1943, there's a shift towards focusing more on Dutch Jews for the exchange programme, rather than Polish Jews. So that's why you have the relatively large numbers of Dutch Jews being, being, being rolled into this programme. Again, very often using using Wadosh passports as well, but also paperwork from other Latin American countries as well. So, Wadosh passport doesn't guarantee survival at all. And it must be said as well that, particularly among the Dutch Jews, very often a Wadosh passport was part of the suite of measures that they would try. So they would try to go underground, they would try to have you know, a false such ID, for example, um, and they would get a Wadosh passport as well. And they maybe would get, you know, a certificate for Palestine. So they had a suite of measures. And then to actually sort of narrow down at the end of the war which one of these was decisive in their survival is almost impossible to say. But among them was also Wadosh passport, crucially. Bearing all of that in mind, I think this is still a very significant addition to the narrative of the Holocaust, to our collective narrative of the Holocaust, and particularly of Holocaust rescue. As I said, 800-plus individuals is not insubstantial. That's quite a significant number, even with the caveats that I've just mentioned. So I think it stands alongside those other diplomatic, re- or diplomatic, University in inverted commas, uh, rescue efforts such as you know, Raul Wallenberg, Nicholas Winton from before the war, uh, and uh, Henrik Swavic, and of course, as we mentioned before, um, Kiyonosuke Sugihara So it fits within that within that narrative. Um, but of course, the story gets forgotten for various reasons, which we can go into. But we're running out of time, so I'll, I will I will I can go into that why it's been forgotten. in Questions, if if anyone's interested, but it has been forgotten. But these, incidentally, these just as as I finish these. Uh, They're almost like index sheets of photographs. These were some of the photographs that were sent in. This comes from the the ICE archive, which is now within the archive of Auschwitz. So Chaim ICE, as I said, was receiving these letters from occupied Poland very often with life dates, often in code, and with passport sort of photographs. We have to assume, because these were kept, these were left in his archive, therefore we assume they weren't used that these were individuals who were not successful in their application. So their index sheets of their passport photographs were left in the archive and now are now in Auschwitz. Um, so we have to assume that their recipients most likely ended up in Auschwitz as well. So there are rather sort of tragic um, reminders of the, those that were not successful in this procedure. The last point to make I suppose is, is um, as I said, this is a rare positive story from a very dark chapter uh, in human history. From the much narrower perspective from us as historians, this is something that we should be extremely, I would suggest, be excited by, Because this is a genuinely new subject. This wasn't really talked about, the the archival work hadn't been done. It's been done in the last five years or so. And it's a genuine, significant addition to the history of the Holocaust, and particularly the history history of Holocaust rescue. And that's something for us as historians, I suggest, that we should find tremendously heartening and exciting. Thank you very
0: much. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie.